Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. It's good to be here. Um, we are right now in between sermon series, um, and we're going to kick off a, uh, a new series uh, next week, actually, next Sunday, which I'll tell you a little bit more about um, at the end of the service, but I'm so pumped for that. But today, uh, I'm going to preach to you out of Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34 through to chapter 9 and verse 1. So uh, did you bring a Bible? Yeah, let's open it. You can swipe up to open it. You can turn a page to open it, but let's open our Bibles and go to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 uh, through to 9 and verse 1. Jesus, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. The sermon is off to a rocky start on Jesus's part. I think he's probably losing his crowd. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. One more passage in 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy is a letter written by a man named Paul to one of his disciples named Timothy. And Timothy was a pastor of a church in an ancient Roman city called Ephesus. And um, Paul is writing to his young protege to encourage him and to exhort him. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Um, the title of the message this morning is Whoever uh, Would Desire to Save Their Life. Whoever Desires to Save uh, Their Life. Um, why don't you write that down if you have any interest today in saving your life. Um, in your notes. If you don't have any interest in saving your life, then don't write it down. Um, but I see you. Thanks for those pity laughs. I appreciate that. It's all good. I'm, I'm okay with awkward silence. It's okay with me. Whoever desires to save their life. Um, I wonder what you think about when you think about Jesus' invitation in Mark chapter 8. I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear his invitation to deny yourself and to carry your cross and to follow him. Uh, these phrases are obviously popular Christian phrases. Anybody who grew up uh, in church has probably heard the terms denying yourself, carrying your cross, and following Jesus. Just a little show of hands. Anybody familiar with that language at all? Great, yeah. So we've all heard those terms before, and there's different things that come to our minds when we hear that invitation um, from the Lord. 
And a lot of times I find that what people tend to think of is uh, stuff that's kind of related to their, their private struggles in life, you know, whether it's like not making enough money uh, in a city like Los Angeles, or maybe it's enduring sickness, or maybe it's um, going through some trial or circumstance. Maybe it's relational drama or wrestling with an ongoing temptation to sin. Well, these are all very real kinds of trials that Christians go through, and you might have to walk through some of those things, and many of us here have walked through more than one of those things uh, in our lifetimes. And as Christians, we are called upon uh, to do so with faithfulness to God and with gratitude and with joy in our hearts, even when we're walking through difficult times. But I do want to point out today that that kind of stuff is not what's in view here when Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And I would say that when we think of denying self and cross-carrying in that category of, of private struggle, it tends to follow that we end up white-knuckling our way through life. Like we're just gripping the steering wheel as hard as we can, trying to like survive this long, painstaking road trip that Jesus has us on. Right? Like, and Jesus is in the car ahead of us with the rest of the Trinity, and they're having a great time. Good for them. But we're behind them in our car, and we're just trying to survive the night. Like, welcome to Christianity. Except it's not, because that's not what's in view here in this invitation. Now, certainly following Jesus is, uh, certainly following Jesus means learning to suffer well through all kinds of, of trials, but we have to understand, and this ought to encourage us, that our suffering is situated in something much more purposeful than trying to survive the night. Our, our, our suffering is situated in something much more grand. And when we zero in on that, on Jesus' true invitation, what does he say? He says, um, whoever would lose their life for my sake and the gospel for my sake and my words. And when we zero in on that invitation, we realize that any suffering that comes along with following Jesus is situated in a much more grand, cosmic, purposeful plan that Jesus is bringing us into. How does he begin the invitation? He says, whoever would come after me, whoever wants to go where I'm going, well, the question is, where's Jesus going? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to establish and inaugurate the kingdom of God. And he came to do that through his death and through his resurrection that the kingdom of heaven would be established on the earth and that you and I would live in that kingdom. So when Jesus says, whoever would come after me, question, is he inviting us on a long, painstaking road trip? I feel like I preached with a little more clarity than what those crickets just indicated. Let's try this again. So when Jesus gives us the invitation to come after him, is he inviting us on a long, painstaking road trip? No, he's not. Participation in church is encouraged, friends and family. Come on, don't get boring. I'm not boring. You don't be boring. That's the deal. He's not inviting us on a long, painstaking road trip. He's inviting us into the kingdom of God. And his death and resurrection is exactly what he was talking to his disciples about right before he turns to address the crowd. And the reason he has to address the crowd the way he does is because in the conversation with his disciples, they don't like what he's saying. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, you gotta cut this whole death thing out. Like, you're supposed to be the Messiah. We don't want you to die. And Jesus rebukes Peter, and then he turns to the crowd who's gathered around him as well, and like, hey, just in case there's any confusion, whoever would come after me, 
must deny themselves, carry their cross. The way that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God is through death and resurrection. The way that you and I enter the kingdom of God is through death and resurrection. That's the way in. And at the end of history, just a little theological lesson for us here, at the end of history, there will be a literal resurrection of the just and the unjust, of those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, and Jesus will come and there will be judgment. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, if we are in Christ, then our sin is already taken care of. But also throughout history, Christians are called to die to self constantly and to live to God. To die to their sin and to live to God. To repent from their sin and to live to God. Now, that does not mean saying sorry and trying harder. Repenting of your sin and living to God means entering into the kingdom that Jesus has called you to live in. That's why Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Is anybody here grateful today that you have been delivered from the domain of darkness? Like, I don't know about you, but I used to be in the domain of darkness and God delivered me from that domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So your forgiveness equals you living in a brand new kingdom reality and that is the invitation that Jesus is giving us in Mark chapter 8. Which means that denying ourselves and carrying our cross is more than fleeing from temptation to sin. And it's more than bearing life's burdens with gratitude in our hearts. Those things are are more private battle than they are public crucifixion. And your private struggles are just that. They are private. The world is probably not going to crucify you because you're over here trying to keep a good attitude in your trial. Keeping a smile on. The world is not going to crucify you because you are over here resisting that same old temptation to sin. They probably don't care. They might think you're silly and that you should just indulge in it because they don't think that it's a sin. But they're not going to put you up on the cross for it. And when we view our private struggles in and of themselves as carrying our cross... Oftentimes that morphs into another version of religious legalism and asceticism. It's severe self-discipline because we think that what Jesus is asking us to do here is for us to crucify ourselves, a.k.a. white-knuckle our way through life. But nobody listening to Jesus in the first century when they heard this invitation would have thought that Jesus was inviting them to crucify themselves. Because when they saw somebody carrying their cross in Rome, it wasn't because that person was crucifying themselves. It's because Rome was crucifying that person. And this is where we find Jesus' point. That he is not inviting you today into a joyless life of abject poverty and severe self-discipline. He's inviting people into costly allegiance to him amidst the idolatrous kingdoms of the world. Whoever would save his life for my sake, lose their life for my sake, and the gospels. What is the gospel? The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not some ambiguous ideology. It is an event that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose again. 
And because of his resurrection and because of his going to the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 and 11, that this is the reason, therefore, that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to lose one's life for the sake of the gospel is not carrying a cross because of private struggle. It's carrying a cross because of public declaration that Jesus died for our sins, was buried in a tomb, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies, which he will continue to do until he brings every last one of them in subjection underneath his feet, at which point he will return, renew creation, hand the kingdom over to God the Father who will fill all in all and we will live in that perfect reality. That, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's what Jesus invites us to lose our lives for. So when he says, I want you to lose my, your life for my sake and the gospels, he is envisioning something much more purposeful than your private struggle. He is envisioning your public faith. And it's your public faith that gives purpose to your private struggle. Because if the faith ain't real, then the struggle ain't worth it. If God isn't real, and Jesus didn't really die, and he didn't really rise again, and he's not really on the throne, then we might as well all be moral relativists. And anything can go. And there's no point in struggling privately over that temptation. But if the faith is real, then it's worth every ounce of struggle. And then your private struggle gives witness to your public faith. I don't want you to misunderstand me. The Bible teaches us holiness and resisting sin. And we unashamedly teach these things here in our church. But the struggles of the believer, listen to me, the struggles of the believer make the most sense when seen in light, not of merely being good Christians, but in being faithful citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. That's where the struggle is situated, and that's where it makes sense. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It says that now when they, they is Paul and Silas, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. This is what he always did when he went into places to preach the gospel. And on three Sabbath days, over three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Underline that, highlight that in your Bible. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that what? Underline this. There is another king, Jesus. So Paul and Silas are reasoning with the people from the scriptures that there is another king named Jesus. Now, when you hear the phrase that they reasoned with them from the scriptures, I don't want you to think proof text. 
I don't want you to think I've got to go find all the passages in the Bible where I can quote to somebody to prove to them that Jesus is the Lord. You should not learn your Bible so that you can quote Bible verses to your unsaved friends. You should learn your Bible so that you can tell your unsaved friends the greatest story that there is to be told. A story that culminates in the reality that Jesus is the King. That's why you need to know your Bible. Your proof text that you're probably taking out of context anyway isn't going to mean much to them. But if you get to know the story of the Bible and what is being summed up in Jesus as the King of all the nations of the world, of all the cosmos, well, that is a story that is compelling to the human soul because guess what? Everybody's living a story. And everybody has somebody who's presiding over that story. And as long as the person presiding over that story is not Jesus, their story's not going to go well. But if you can tell them a better story, and I promise you that Jesus as the one presiding over the story is much better than them presiding over their story. And it does not take very long to show people that them presiding over the story isn't working out so well. But if you can help them to see that Jesus is telling a better story, and he's inviting them to bring their story into his story, that's the invitation of the gospel to live under King Jesus, and that was their message. Nothing less. So losing our lives for the sake of the gospel means losing our lives for the sake of remaining loyal to and calling other people to be loyal to King Jesus. And Jesus calls this saving your life. Which then in context means that we're not just saved from something, though we are saved from judgment, but we are also saved for something. We were saved for the kingdom of God and for the purposes that God has for our lives in the kingdom. And God has a purpose for every single one of our lives here today, that God has formed and fashioned you and God has created you. Like he thought of you in his mind and he made you and he, he made you worthy through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could fill you with the gift of his Holy Spirit so that you could walk not in timidity, not in weakness, not in fear, but in the power of God. Although we be jars of clay and though we be fragile vessels, we've been filled with the almighty power that fills heaven, now fills you a vessel of the Holy Spirit, not so you can walk aimlessly, but so that you can walk purposefully, so that you can be not just a good Christian, but a faithful citizen and ambassador of the kingdom of God, not just so that you can witness to the goodness of God here in church, but so that you can witness to the goodness of God wherever you go, in your workplace, in your apartment complex, in your neighborhood, uh, wherever it is you find yourself. You can live in this kingdom reality. And this is what Jesus has invited us to do. So we have to change the way that we think about what it means to deny ourselves, to carry our cross, and to follow Jesus. If this is nothing less than a cosmic acceptance of the reign of Christ, then rejection of Jesus is nothing less than a cosmic rejection of the kingdom of God, and therefore an embrace of the kingdoms of this world. And that's what Jesus called gaining the world. Now, a lot of times when Christians hear gaining the world, we start thinking of some arbitrary line that we have to unco uncover somewhere where, like, if I have, like, this much wealth, I'm okay. But if I cross the line, then, like, all of a sudden, Jesus is like, ooh, that last bit puts you over the edge. I think we're, we can't be friends anymore. That's what we think. Like, how much of the world can I have before I've officially gained the world? Like, can I own one car? Or can I own two? Can I have a house? Can I have two houses? 
Like, let's say you're a photographer here today. Can I own four cameras or can I own seven cameras? Like, I would like seven. Friend, you can own eight cameras. I don't care how many cameras you have. And Jesus doesn't care how many cameras you have either. That's not what gaining the world is about. Jesus said we gain the world by losing our soul. And we lose our soul by being ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom and choosing adultery and sin against him instead of loyalty to him. That's not about some arbitrary limit upon what your material life looks like. In other words, the kind of gain that Jesus is condemning here is not that which is gained by diligent work, but that which is gained by compromising on the king and his kingdom. Now, if in order for you to gain something, man, you had to neglect your family, then you rejected the king and his kingdom. If in order for you to gain something, you had to compromise on your kingdom integrity, on the values and the ethics of, of the kingdom, then you rejected the king and the kingdom. So not everything that looks right is right. You gotta look at your heart and have God search your heart and say, if what I'm going after right now, is it really pure or is it a rejection of the king and his kingdom? But it's not automatically gaining the world just because you're successful in life. I love Proverbs 10, 22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. That's talking about money. The blessing of God makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. In other words, when God blesses a person, it does not come with guilt. It does not come with a burden. It does not come with shame. And God wants to increase his people. He absolutely does. And so we got to put all this in context and understand what Jesus is calling us into here. The problem is, is that when we opt to gain in a way that betrays the king and his kingdom, let me say it to you like this. Um, the gospel does not inherently mean suffering. At least not in the sense of poverty vows and severe self-discipline. But the gospel does mean suffering in the sense that our commitment to the gospel means saying no to things to which the world says yes. And saying no to things still, even when the world would demand that you say yes. And therein lies the cross. Because you're not the one putting yourself up on the cross. The idolatrous kingdoms of the world put you up on the cross. So that when they want you to say yes and you say no, they go, ooh, looks like you got a cross there. And we don't cower in fear. We go, you're right, I do. I will die on this hill. Ever heard a phrase? Heard the phrase? This is my hill to die on. Jesus died on a hill because he lived for the truth. And Rome didn't like it. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem didn't like it. And that's the invitation of Christianity. This is what the martyrs of the early centuries went through. This is what the martyrs of modern-day Christians in um, communist China go through. This is what the martyrs in the Islamic states in the Middle East go through. And we in the West might go through some kind of version in our own context that will look different, but it will, it will be difficult all the same. And we'll go through our own version in the sense because in a society that is filled with people that are absolutely committed to self-authorship and they're absolutely committed to the expressive individualism of their psychological self, what they think is ultimate reality in here, and in a state that is absolutely hell-bent on legislating upon those thoughts as though they were ultimate reality. It's not... It's not hard to figure out that living for the king and the ethics of the kingdom isn't going to win you any popularity contests. And it might cost you. It could cost you relationally. It might cost you economically. It might cost you both. But that's okay. Because what will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. So let's just sum it up, and I'm almost done. Is this okay? It's not too Debbie Downer, right? This is all right. Okay, good. We're learning. We're growing in grace. We're learning the Bible. It's awesome. So denying ourselves and, and carrying our cross is nothing less than total loyalty to Jesus. And this we should do because Jesus is actually the king. Everything rides on that point, on the fact that Jesus is actually the king. And if Jesus were not the king, then this passage here in Mark chapter 8 would be one of those moments where we would be justified in saying to the group of people who think Jesus is just a good person, we would be justified in saying, I don't know if he's good, because if he's not actually the king, then this seems like an inappropriate demand to carry a cross. But if he is the king, and if he is the God of all reward for his people, then the demand is okay, because we're following after him into the kingdom of God, which is not confined to the limitations of this world, but exists in all loyalty, in all eternity. And Jesus grounds the invitation in that. He says, whoever's ashamed of me, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when what? When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, whenever you see language in the New Testament about Jesus coming somewhere, like in a, a kind of a meta sense, um, one of two things is in view. And you really need to know this because this will help sort out your theology really quick. Because you'll read some things in the New Testament where Jesus is like, this is going to happen and, uh, and you're going to see it before I come again. You're like, oh, he hasn't come yet and I don't know what I understand. Right? So whenever you see language where Jesus is coming somewhere, one or two things is in view. Either his return or his ascension to the Father after his resurrection. And here in Mark chapter 8, the thing that's most likely in view is, is uh, Jesus' return. When he comes again uh, in the glory of his Father and with the, with the holy angels. But the way that we make sure Jesus is not ashamed of us when he returns is by you and I not being ashamed of him while he's reigning. And all of these things are very, very important. It's not that one is more true and more important than the other. I'm just trying to help us see that if you live like Jesus has just stepped out of the picture for a little while, but is coming back one day, that'll make you want to be a good Christian. But if you live like Jesus is actually on the throne right now and ruling and reigning, that will make you want to be an effective Christian. That will make you want to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God who actually takes the kingdom reality and furthers it in the earth. And that's what you and I are called to do. One last scripture and I'll wrap it up, give you just some quick application to your actual life. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, the bank can come, Daniel chapter 7, um, Daniel was a, a Jewish man who was born in Babylonian oppression. He was born in Babylonian captivity and um, he was faithful to God even in the midst of his, of his captivity. And he was a prophet. And Daniel, the book of Daniel is, is one of the most important Old Testament books for you and I to understand uh, life in the last days. And when I say last days, I mean from the moment Jesus got up to the grave, got from the grave to the moment Jesus returned. That's all the last days, okay? So don't think left behind. That's bunk theology, okay? Um, you should know that, by the way. If you read it, hope you enjoyed it, but it's, don't base your truth on that because it's, it's not right. Um, so... Daniel is a really important book. In, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this, this prophetic vision. And he says this in verse 13. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, underline that phrase, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. So Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man, that's Jesus, coming not to the earth, but coming to the Ancient of Days. 
and was presented to God the Father. Now this is the verse that Jesus quotes to the high priest the evening before his crucifixion. The high priest is interrogating Jesus. And Jesus says to the high priest, um, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see, high priest, first century man, lives in the first century, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, if coming on the clouds of heaven means the return of Jesus, and this man living in the first century was supposed to see that, then what are we doing here if Jesus has already come? Of course, that's not what Jesus means at all. Jesus is quoting here Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And the high priest knew exactly what Jesus was implying in that moment, which is why his response was to backhand Jesus across the face. Because the very next verse in Daniel 7, verse 14, is that to him, to the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying the time is here. I'm about to ascend to the Ancient of Days and when I get to the right hand of my Father, I'm going to receive all dominion, all glory, all power. I'm going to receive a kingdom that cannot wither, that will not pass away. All people from all people groups of languages, tribes, and tongues, they're going to worship me. They're going to deny themselves. They're going to carry their cross, and they're going to follow me into the kingdom of God, and theirs will be the inheritance of the new creation. Following Jesus, not just to live a good life, though you should live a good life. Not just to live a moral life, though you should live a moral life but to live a life loyal to the King who has come to the Ancient of Days, who is ruling and reigning right now in the midst of his enemies. That's what Psalm 110 says. He's reigning in the midst of his enemies. Jake, why is bad stuff still happening? Well, because he's ruling and reigning, but he's doing it in the midst of his enemies. And they're still causing chaos and wreaking havoc and doing evil things, but he will bring all of them in subjection underneath his feet. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. The last enemy of which will be death. But his kingdom is real. It's not just up there. It's right here. It's not just someday. It's also today for you and I to live in that reality. The irony, of course, is that by instructing us to carry our cross, Jesus knew that he was instructing us to carry the very thing that the powers of darkness used to try and kill him, not knowing that he would rise again on the third day. Which means when we carry the cross and culture puts you up on the cross, the powers that are at work behind culture causing this evil, when you and I go through that and we suffer well, we are literally mocking them. Because they can't hold back the king and they can't hold back the kingdom. They failed before and they will always fail. And when you and I suffer well, we are reminding them of their failure. That's why the book of Colossians says that through the cross, Jesus um, he put the powers of evil to public shame. And when you choose to be a person of the truth, 
and live by it and culture don't like it. You put the powers of evil, it's not a war against flesh, I'm not putting them to shame. That's why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Stephen, the first martyr, getting killed. They don't know what they do. So you're not putting them to shame. You love them. You love them through your death and your resurrection. But you're putting the powers of evil, the principalities, the unseen realm that work behind the evil in this world. You're putting them to shame. And they're on a clock, ladies and gentlemen. And their time's running out. King Jesus is going to come again. He's going to renew the heavens and the earth. There will be a brand new creation. And he will pass the kingdom to God his Father. And God will fill all in all. I feel the Holy Spirit on this message. Just three really quick applications. Application number one, love the king. Paul said to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That word ashamed literally means embarrassed. He's saying don't be, don't be embarrassed of Jesus and his testimony. Testimony is another word for the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection, reigning. Don't be ashamed of Jesus and the truth of who he is, what he came to do, and where he's at right now. The opposite of being embarrassed is um, a little thing called PDA. Okay, anybody here hate PDA? Like you're out and in, in doing your thing and like people are just PDA and all over the place, right? Yeah, of course, it's gross, ugh. You need to get all kinds of PDA with Jesus going on in your life, friends. That's the opposite of embarrassment. That's the opposite of being ashamed. Is to go public with your, your declaration. Go public with your faith in Jesus Christ. I do this little experiment right now with Winston, our seven-year-old son. Whenever we're walking down the street, I just stick my hand out and I count how many seconds it takes for him to scurry up and catch up with me and grab a hold of my hand. I did this last night when I was rounding the corner, walking up to the son's event. I stuck my hand out. I thought, there's one place he's not going to do it. It's going to be here where he's like walking into a group of a bunch of men. Nope, sure enough. Scurries up from behind me, grabs my hand. He starts walking with daddy. One day, I'm going to stick out my hand and I'm going to count. And guess what ain't going to happen? He ain't grabbing that hand. I'm going to turn around and go, not today, daddy. It's not happening. I love you, but I'm not holding your hand, right? He's going to get too old for it, right? I don't know if that's 10. I don't know if it's 11. I don't know when it's happening. Friends, pray for me. It's a great deal of suspense in my life right now. You and I, as it relates to our life with Jesus, we need to be like seven-year-old Winston, not like 11-year-old Winston. It's time to be public about the fact that Jesus died for your sins, was buried in a tomb, rose again on the third day, and is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in the midst of all of his enemies. You gotta love the King, friends. You gotta be honest about who the King is. Application number two, you gotta live by the power of God. He said, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The power of God is not an it, the power of God is a he. His name is the Holy Spirit. And you and I are called to live by one power and one power alone. And that power is the Holy Spirit of the Most High God. And you are not filled just with your own self. As a follower of Jesus, you get filled with the Spirit of the Almighty God. And the only way you will make it through any form of suffering as a Christian is to live not by your own strength, not by your own might, but by the power of the Most High God. His name is the Holy Spirit. And so you, as Paul says in Ephesians, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's filled and keep being filled. Spend time in prayer. Spend time studying the Scriptures and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Show up to neighborhood group and let your brothers and sisters in Christ lay their hands on you and declare the goodness of God over your life to break the bondage of negativity and to plant the seed of God's kingdom in your thoughts so that you live by that power.
The people in the early church, they didn't just experience the power of God, they expected it. You and I live with the thought that maybe one day we'll experience it. They live with the thought that we're expecting God's power to show up today and to do miracles in our lives. That's why all throughout the book of Acts, you see miracles from the healing of the sick to the raising of the dead, to the conversion of people who had no business being in the kingdom of God, but God had a better plan for their life, to the spreading of the church from 11 uneducated men to 2 billion people around the world today. Friends, if that's not a miracle, then I don't know what is, and it only happens by the power of the King, friends and family, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Application number three, light up the culture. We live by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, us as you and I, us as the church, he gave us this purpose and grace, this holy calling in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That holy calling is to faithfully follow the King. I love C.S. Lewis. You heard, read, ever read any C.S. Lewis? He wrote the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a moment in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan, the lion, he is a representative of King Jesus. And one of the little girls asks um, another one of the creatures about Aslan before she meets him. She says, is he safe? The creature says, safe? He's not safe, but he's king. God has not invited you into a safe life. God has invited you into an adventurous life that is characterized by God's power where you can be a light unto the world and light up the culture in which you live. Friends, it's not just an inspiring message. You are actually to go into your job tomorrow intent on being a light to the world, being a light that shows them that they can be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son as well. And who are we kidding? Being a light in darkness is actually difficult. Like I know people like to talk about how they like to be different, but the reality is that when we're really different, it's hard. Being different is difficult. And that's why God had this crazy idea where he was gonna take all of the individual lights of the world, bring them together and culminate in them, them into one great glorious light. And that light's called the church. And to the light of the church, the individual lights, they come and they go out into the world where they can take what they received. That's why you need to be here. That's why you need to be connected to community in this church so you can take what you receive into the world, not live like a weak, impotent, fearful Christian, but live like a Christian who is actually filled with a purpose and a mission to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And people's response to the light will vary. That's why you got the cross. But the world might have a thousand hills to crucify you on. And you need to know that Jesus has a thousand and one resurrections to bring you back to life again and to help you keep marching forward in faith in Jesus' name. Come on, if you received the word today, I need you to stand to your feet and give the God of heaven and earth the greatest praise that you can possibly muster right now. Come on, we're talking about the King who's on the throne. He's You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.